0: Well, good morning, class. It's time to go. uh, It looks like some people stayed up and watched the end of the ball game last night. (laughs) But it's good to see you here this morning. Thank the Lord for the opportunity that I have to share with you. And I hope it's going to be profitable to you as we proceed through the book of Revelation. It's a lot of fun. Pastor made fun of all my notes that I've got written in my Bible he wants to take a picture of it, but frankly that 's all my brains are right there on the in the margins but we're we're glad you're here today, and I hope it will be a blessing let 's pray uh, before we start this morning. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that is ours to look into your word and allow it to teach us uh, you 've already promised that there are blessings associated with our um, acquaintance with and obedience to uh, the teaching of this book. Now help us to understand as we deal with some issues that perhaps at first sight uh, may appear to be just uh, comments that have no real significance, where in reality as we look at the text and contemplate other passages, they come alive and have meaning. So help us to understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week, class, you'll recall that I gave you an outline uh, that uh, helps you to uh, work your way through this book. We're in an easy part of the book right now. Uh, The outline is pretty simple. But you'll remember that if you go back to verse 19 of chapter 1, we're pointed to an outline for the book. Notice what he says, Right there for the things which you have seen, and after he has seen the vision of Christ in chapter 1, that's what he's talking about, and the things that are, the things that are currently uh, going on, that would be the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and then the things that shall take place after these things, after the church age is through and we go into the tribulation period, and in particular, The latter half, the latter three and a half years of the tribulation period is what is the emphasis in this book. Now, this morning, what I want us to do, class, is to look very closely at the vision of Christ. And I want you to notice there's an outline that might be helpful to you in the days to come. But the the setting, I call it the setting of the vision in verse 9 through verse 11, And then in verse 12 to 16, the subject of the vision, that is, Jesus Christ. And then uh, in verse 17 through verse 20, the sequel to the vision, what comes immediately after as Christ interacts uh, with uh, the Apostle John through his messenger. Now, this morning we have gone through of uh, verse 8 already we will begin with the setting of the vision in verse 9. Now here's what John says. I John your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which is which are in Christ or in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I have suggested to you, when you talk about because of the word and the testimony of Jesus, it it is more than simply uh, talking about John's life of ministry. It appears, when you look back at verse 2 and then again uh, in this passage, that probably he's talking about the problems that surfaced, the adversities that he faced, and the reason why he's on the island of Patmos is because of what he was teaching from this book. Okay? Now, notice what it says. I was in the Spirit. We pointed that out last time. That is intimacy. We see in Christ uh, in the previous verse. Now we have in the Spirit. And the idea, class, if you look up here just a second, is when we talk about intimacy with God... It's not just an outward association, but intimacy in God involves He is in us, and we are in Him. There is an intimacy that is indescribable in normal terms. So it just simply says, I'm in Christ, and I'm in the Spirit. I am being controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit is working in my life. That's the idea. So I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, the instruction that is given is, write in a book what you see, send it to the seven churches, and it names the seven churches. Now there's the, there's the setting of the vision. Uh, then we come uh, in, uh, in, in uh, verse 12 to the subject of the vision, Jesus Christ himself. Notice, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and so on. So we have this picture of Jesus Christ in the midst of these lampstands, And when you get down a little bit further, he has seven stars in his hand. Now, the emphasis there is that that relationship of intimacy uh, is, is one in which Christ is right in our midst. Not only is he in your life and in mine, but he's in the life of our church. And he's in the life of churches around the world. After all, he is the head of the church amen and so he is on duty and he is supervising and responding to what's going on in his churches now notice and i turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and having turned i saw the golden lampstands in the middle of the lampstands one like the son of man now it's not articulated there a son of man uh, you know, I, I and my initial response is, well, I wish it, had, it was articulated, the Son of Man, so we would know. But what I think is being suggested here, and this is my educated guess, because I don't have any verses to back it up. But when it says, one like a Son of Man, the idea is, John says, I've had interaction with uh, uh, angels, that are appear like men and so on. But this one is different. This one is a son of man that is perhaps different from the rest. Okay? That's all I can suggest to you. And then notice it says uh, in verse 14, uh, or in verse 13, In the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across uh, his breast with a golden girdle. Now, here is the first of a number of descriptions of Jesus Christ. And as we look at them and meditate them on them, child of God, we ought to draw some implications from what's being said. And the suggestion that most come up with, and I I totally agree with it here, is this is a representation. The breast and the girdle and all of that are, are similar to the description you would have of the high priest. And so I would suggest that he's not a high priest. He is the high priest. Amen? And so we need to recognize him as such. Now, that's important. He is our high priest. I want you to hold your place here. And I'm going to ask you to go with, a num- with me to a number of different passages this morning to try to milk the implications. Here he is. He's our high priest. I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. As soon as you see it, you'll know uh, that you are familiar with it. Chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. And I want you to look at the verse 15 and verse 16. We've suggested that this description implies that he is our great high priest. Now, what does that mean? When you look at verse 15 and 16 of Hebrews 4, we read, For we do not have a high priest who cannot be, uh, cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now look up here. Our great high priest became a man. He is the incarnate God. He is fully God and he's fully man. I know we understand it, but there are people that come to classes sometimes that may not. So we want to point that out and make that obvious. But because he is an in, the incarnate Son of God, because he is fully man and has lived on this earth, He knows all about the temptations that are out there. Now, he resisted them all. Why? Because he doesn't have the Adamic sin nature. Uh, But the point is, he understands our weaknesses. He can sympathize with those weaknesses because he understands the temptations and the testings that are out there for us because of the world we live in. Everybody with me? Now, notice what it says. Because he can sympathize with our weaknesses, verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence. Why? He knows. He understands. He's been there uh, with confidence to the throne of grace. Why do we go to the throne of grace? That purpose clause, purpose clause, that we may receive mercy. Now, look up here. When we come to the throne of grace, we need to recognize we need His mercy because we've sinned. We're guilty. Amen? And His mercy is available to us. But beyond that, that you may receive mercy and find grace. Now, we'll look at the next To help in times of need. The point I want to make there is that we have all these definitions of grace. And they're all proper, undeserved mercy, all those kinds of words that we use. And they're accurate and they're true. I just want to add one more to you. Grace means God's ability, God's help when you need it. For example, for by grace are we saved. What does that mean? By His help we are saved. We could not do that ourselves. Amen? Amen. And so it's the grace of God that we can find when we go to the throne of grace to help in times of need. He's a sympathetic, sympathetic high priest, and we can go to him for mercy, and we can go to him for help in living our life before him. Amen? Now, that's what I see when we come to our text. And we have this one described as being clothed in a robe down to his feet with a girdle and so on. Now, when you get to verse 14, the A part of the verse, we have a second description. Notice what it says. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow. Uh, The Old Testament says the whole frost on the head. And the idea is that this one is one with experience and knowledge. This is one who is one of our elders that needs to be respected and honored. He is one who has dignity, and we need to respond to him properly. Now, notice it says, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. Now, when we talk about his experience and his knowledge and the fact that we can come to him, this dignified one who is way down the road as a man, way down the road beyond us, I want you to understand he has familiarity. He understands. He knows about the churches. And he knows what is going on. In Glen Iris Baptist Church. Pastor knows a lot of stuff that we don't know. And I'm glad I don't know. I used to be a pastor. And there's stuff. That's the best word I can use. There's stuff in every church. No matter how wonderful. I love Glen Iris. But there's stuff here. I guarantee you. Amen. And so the text is saying. Okay he knows all about that. In other words, he is familiar with what is a part of who we are as a church. And as a matter of fact, if you'll just jump ahead with me just a second. Go to chapter 2. Notice, do the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the one who holds the stars in the hand, and so on. Verse 2, I know. Now I want to give you a little lesson. When we talk about the original text, the word no, the common word is gnosko. You've heard me talk about that. And then you have epi-gnosko. You add a little preposition to the front. That becomes experiential knowledge. Just not data, but the implications of how it works in your life, experiential knowledge. But that's not the words here. Neither one of those. So a word here is oida. You Know what it means? He knows perfectly all about our churches. Amen? He knows perfectly. He has no blind spots when it comes to his people. Now, there's the idea uh, when we come to uh, verse 14, the first part of the verse. And I I would throw out another verse for you. Uh, Look with me. Go with me to Isaiah 40. I used to quote it all the time, but I'm getting to a point where I, I try to remember, but I don't remember to quote well as like I used to. But Isaiah 40, this is a familiar passage. Notice what it says. Verse 27, Isaiah 40. Notice what it says. Why do you say, O Jacob, assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? It's certainly not. He knows perfectly. And it and the justice that it do uh, that is due me escapes the notice of my God, oh no, it doesn't, He knows perfectly, and then it says, "Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the end of the earth, does not grow weary and tired? Now look up here: he doesn't grow weary and tired he doesn't have to take time off and take a power nap or go to bed at night and sleep. He's always on duty. There's his alertness. Okay? Then notice what it says. His understanding is inscrutable. I've forgotten what the King James says. A little bit different translation. But the idea is, his understanding is, watch it, perfect. And so the text says, uh, his alertness and his awareness then it says, and he gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks uh, uh, He might, he gives power. Look at that. He is aware, he's alert, and he responds. That's uh, this great high priest that we have who is, a resemb- who is described for us as one who has great wisdom and dignity. Now, in verse 14. Now the second part of verse fourteen, we have another, a third description. Look what it says: and his eyes were like a flame of fire. When I look at that, I think, okay, what does that imply? Uh, he has eye like a flame of fire. Maybe X-ray. Maybe the ability to see inside and comprehend who we are, He here's your word that I want to give to you. Not only does uh, he have mercy and dignity, but he has scrutiny with which he looks into us. His eyes were like a flame of fire. You remember uh, that when we, when we talk in 1 Samuel, Hannah says, I love Hannah, Hannah says, Uh, That uh, who is holy like our Yahweh? There is none like thee, she says to Yahweh. Then she says, Who? uh, What rock is there like our, uh, 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 what's my word there? The Almighty. Yahweh and Elohim, the Almighty. Uh, And it goes on to say, uh, once you have uh, recognized who he is, speak no more very proudly. Let no arrogance come forth out of your mouth. For the Lord God is a God of knowledge. And with him, actions are weighed. Actions include what I say. So here is a God who scrutinizes us and knows all about us. Then notice, when you get to um, uh, verse 15a, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow and to furnish. It's been refined and purified. There's his uh, purity. And out of that purity, because it's the feet... It gives stability. He is uh, very, very capable of functioning in purity and in life uh, and be stable in doing so. You know what the Scripture says? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It quotes the Old Testament. But it says, you be holy because I am. Now, I got to thinking about that. You know, that's an important statement. How do I I somehow communicate that? Be ye holy, for I am holy. When we were kids, I did. I suppose you did. As a boy, I admired my dad so much that I did a lot of things that just imitated him. You gals did the same thing. You wore wore your mom's shoes and you put on all of her uh, jewelry and you dressed up like you were mom. Why? We loved mom. We loved dad. We want to be like them. So we imitate them even as youngsters. May I say to you, if we love God, we'll want to imitate him. And he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Purified feet is the idea in the text that brings about holiness in the life. Then notice, when you get to 15b, there's another description. Notice what it says. Uh, and his voice was like the sound of, of many waters. Have you ever been anywhere in our country or around the world where you look to the great falls and you can hear them for long distance? They're so powerful and there's so much water going over those falls. If you go to Niagara Falls, it's unbelievable the noise that is there. In other places in the world, we've seen uh, that kind of thing and you have too. It's a description of that that is powerful, the almighty God, his ability. Now, if you go over, hold your place here, and if you go over Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, notice what it says, verse 8, that the four living creatures are worshiping in heaven. And it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. That is uh, who we're being, having described for us. He is the almighty God. Holy he is, and therefore he is powerful. Purity leads to ability. And that's the way it is in your life and mine. As we live a life that is conforming to the image of Christ, there is an ability in our lives to avoid so much of the contamination that is out there. So, almighty. Then notice what he says. In his right hand, he held seven stars. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, when we talk about him holding us, uh, the illustration that always comes to me is my youngest son, Paul, who lives here in the city and has a ministry, a counseling ministry. Um, We were in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, when my grandparents on my mom's side were still alive. Granddaddy Merritt and what we we called her Mom Merritt. We loved them, and my kids loved them. They were special, special people, especially Mom Merritt. We would go in the summers and visit each of the grandkids. Had two weeks with Mom, Mert, and Granddaddy. It was absolutely wonderful. Well, one one uh, weekend we were down visiting as a family, and the boys were getting a little restless. So I took them out in the front yard. wasn't a very big yard, but big enough for those three boys at that point in their life. And we played ball, and I was the pitcher. And they would bat, and one would be in the field. One would be catcher, I guess, and, and, uh, and uh, one would be batter. So we had three boys. They had their positions. Now, one of the boys hit the ball, and he hit it pretty well. And it went beyond my son Paul, who was out in the field. He was the fielder at this particular point. And the ball rolled through the yard, got into the gutter, and went down into the sewer. It was a dry sewer. So we lifted the top off, and we dropped Paul down in there, and he got the ball and threw it up to us. Then he reached up his hand. Now watch it. He reached up his hand, and he was holding on with all of his might. But I had reached down my hand, and I had him. Who is the one? Who is this security? His grip or my grip? I guarantee you, it was mine. And so when we look at the text here, and it says, uh, in his right hand he held the seven churches. The power. No one can pluck you out of my hand, the text says. Amen? And so the, uh, the text here, "I, his right hand he held the seven churches. Uh, churches, there's security. Now let's look at so, a couple of. Remember, one of the famous Psalms, twenty-three. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what I'll fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. There's security. Uh, we go to Psalms ninety-one. I will not be a pray, afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in the evening time, nor the destruction that lays waste at noontime. And then he goes on to say, A thousand will fall at your hand, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not approach unto you, but your eyes shall see the recompense on the wicked. We have all kinds of verses, child of God, that talk about his security. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to go back to Daniel and all of that. But here's my point. That is a general principle. Does that mean that there is no such thing uh, as us getting into trouble or having a problem or GI who loves uh, Jesus with all his heart being killed in Vietnam? Of course not. It's a general principle, but there are occasions when God wants to use our suffering, to use our crisis, so he lets us to go through it, but he's still in charge. Amen? Does that make sense? I had a young uh, African-American fella. oh my, he was a one of, I can't remember his name, I tried to look it up in my diary, I can't find it, but he was from Rome, Georgia. He was in a Bible church in Rome, Georgia. He was on point one day. I'll tell you this story. He was taking a moody correspondence course on prayer while he was in Vietnam in combat. He was on point one day. Sniper hit him right between the eyes. Has God failed in his promise? No. All through the scriptures we see where people give their lives. Think about the martyrs and all those people who have suffered in days past. It's a general principle. It's a principle that we can hold on to, but it's not absolute. Everybody with me? Now, notice what he says. In his right hand, he, has, he holds the stars. There's our security. Uh, then notice, in the, the next part of verse 16, he says, And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, There's his weaponry. And when we talk about him this way, I use the word accountability. I am accountable to God, and he has whatever is necessary. He can speak and bring judgment or discipline in my life or in the life of our church. We have pictures painted of uh, the Son of Man, and he has this sword coming out. That's not the point at all. His weapon... Is His Word. He spoke, and the worlds came into being. He speaks, and He can bring any kind of a crisis or judgment, a discipline or blessing into our lives simply by speaking it. Accountability. You remember when you when you get to um, uh, to Romans thirteen, and it talks about the ministers who are ministers of God. What does it say? They don't bear the sword in vain, in verse 4. You know, they they have a weapon that they can use to bring about discipline in the lives of people in our society. So there's accountability. Then notice uh, the two-edged sword. Then, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time here this morning. Uh, his face shining like the sun, uh, when we talk about uh this particular verse i want I want to use the word glory, so we have several different descriptions in this vision. He is the god of mercy he's the god of dignity. He's the God of scrutiny. He's the God of purity and stability. He's the God Almighty. He's the God of security. And now we see He's the God of glory. He, his face shines like, uh, like the sun. Now last week uh, I made a comment uh, that I didn't understand the verse up in verse 7. Behold, He's coming in the clouds. I didn't know what that meant. And uh, and uh, one of the students came up to me afterward and suggested a, a very good observation, a very good uh, suggestion as to what it meant. That's the Chicana glory, and I thought, okay, that that sounds like a good answer. Well, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I go there? So I had to go back and do my research. And the bottom line is, class, I would like to suggest to you that whenever you see. The Shekinah glory. By the way, Shekinah means God's dwelling. Okay? It means God's dwelling. And so when the cloud appeared in the Exodus and led the children of Israel, and it was a ball of fire by night, and it was a cloud that led them during the day. That's the cloud, the Shekinah, God's dwelling. Uh, when you go to... Uh, the Sinai, and Moses goes up, and he's talking and interacting with God. A cloud came in. There's the Shekinah. Notice, singular, the cloud. Uh, when you go to the tabernacle, when God comes to dwell in the tabernacle, he comes in a cloud. And when you when you go to Solomon's temple, uh, God comes in a cloud. There's the Shekinah. Uh, in the New Testament, when you talk about Christ being transfigured in Matthew 19, you know what it says? And God spoke out of the cloud and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And, and then the ascension in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, he goes up and we watch, they watched as he went up into the cloud, the Shekinah. The cloud, singular, in each of the cases. Uh, But here in verse 7, behold, he is coming in the clouds. Plural. One cloud, one God. Clouds. What does that mean? I still don't know. But I know it's not the Shekinah. Because that's a single cloud. Does that make sense? And so the idea is when we come down here, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. There's his glory. There's the Shekinah glory. And let me give you a verse to go with it. If you will turn with me uh, to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, I think it will help us. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, look what the text says here. Got it? Don't lose your place in Revelation. We're going to go right back. It, it is describing the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. The, uh, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, verse 1, and in the prophets and in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken unto us in Son, his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made uh, the worlds. And he is the radiance of his glory. He is the showing forth, that's the word. I think the King James translated brightness, that's a good translation. But the idea of the text, sometimes we might miss it, is he is the brightness that comes from a source. His glory is the same as the Shekinah glory, and he is reflecting that even in his incarnate state in a limited fashion. He is the radiance, the showing forth of his glory. That's the Shekinah. Making sense to you? Now, so when we go back to Revelation, this last uh, little description, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. I want to suggest to you that is a description of the Shekinah that is uh, reflected in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Now, here's the sequel. There is the description of the Son of Man. And if you will spend time, I've tried to do a little bit of it to get you going, but if you'll start spending time thinking through the implications of what these... uh, these different descriptions mean I think it will become a powerful influence in your life I am not suggesting that I've got everything there there's more I'm sure I'm not God and you're not either we're never going to tap all of it so the bottom line is as we study it and meditate on it more and more will come to light for us amen now we we have seen the circumstances or the setting of the vision in verses 9 through 11. Uh, we have seen in verse 12 to 16 the subject of the vision, the Son of God. And then we see the sequel to the vision, verse 17 to verse 20, uh, before we go into the seven churches. Now, I've got a few minutes. I want to deal with them uh, as uh, the uh, sequel to the vision. The first thing I want you to see is that Christ uh, uh, identifies Himself for John. We have the description here that what Christ is now going to make it very clear. This is who I am. Look at the text. He says in verse seventeen, "And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand on me, upon me, saying." Don't be afraid, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive. Now, there's the description he gives to him, and he says something about the fact that he is judge and has the destiny of every person in his, under his control, his judgment. Now, may I make a couple of comments on the words that are used here to describe the Lord Jesus Christ? The first thing I want you to notice is that he laid his right hand uh, uh, on me. Um, There are times when you go to the hospital as a pastor or just as a believer and you pat the person on the hand or you hold their hand. Or when, uh, like one of the couples from... Our church came to see my wife and brought us a meal. Uh, He wanted to pray for us. And so we held hands. The significance of holding hands. The calming effect of holding hands. How about that? The Lord Jesus was holding his hand. Wow, what an experience that was. And notice, so he says, in your right hand. Uh, uh, he said, his right hand was upon me. And then, so that's a calming touch, a comforting touch. But then, no, notice what he says. And he laid his hands on me and said, do not be afraid. There's a comforting word. Don't be afraid. God's in charge. God knows what he's doing. That sounds like a cliché, but the bottom line is when we say that to people, it's really true. Amen. Then notice we, we his right hand touched him, and then he said, don't be afraid. And then he gives this description. Not only do we have a calming touch and a comforting word, but we also have a controlling power that is being described for us, a controlling power. Look, he says, I am the living one. They dea- is dealing with his his um his, uh, deity. I am the living one. Let's stop. Think about that man. He has he is the living one. He is the very source of life. You got two choices, class. When you start asking the basic philosophical questions, do you believe that matter came into being on its own and we grew out of all of that? Or do we start with the living one, the eternal one? How can you believe that? How do you believe nothing became something? I'd rather say, Something has been living forever. The living one. Amen? So, he first of all, there's his deity. Then secondly, notice that it talks about, uh, not only is he the living one, but he's the self-existing one. Remember in Exodus when he gave the name, who Who are you? You're Yahweh. You are the living one. Uh, I then notice, He says, I was dead and now I'm alive. I'm the living one. But then notice what it says. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He is the one in charge of the destiny of all human beings, past, present, and future. Notice, then he moves from that Uh, describing who he is. This is who I am. I am God, I am the self-existent one, and I'm the one in charge of your destiny. Then he says uh, in verse uh, 19, he gives the instructions to John, and this is where we get our outline. Write therefore the things that you have seen, chapter 1, the things that are, chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches, and the things that shall be after these things. And you say, well, wow, I wish we'd hurry up and get to the after these things part. And that's what everybody thinks about in the book of Revelation. But there's a lot of other material here. It's really about Jesus Christ. So we've got to settle who he is before all this other can come to light. But there's his instructions to John. And then finally, in our time of begun, Christ's clarification to John. As for myself, uh, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels, the seven messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, he's in the midst of the lampstand, in the midst of the churches, and he has in his right hand, the leaders, the messengers. Now, the question class, and I'm going to bring it up because I don't want to have to answer it And right at the end of the class. Is this talking about an angel that's over each church or is it talking about the pastor? I'll make an observation. I think it's the pastor. And you say, boo, that's not true. Well, I, I think both of us have a problem trying to answer that, but I do think maybe it's the angel working through the pastor. Here's what I want to say. Our pastor is different. In one way, he's just one of us. But another way, he's the anointed of God. Amen. And somehow or another, we've lost sight of that distinction in our present day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the implications that we see in the text here. Help us, Father to know You. Help us to appreciate Your Son who is in our midst and has us in His hand. Thank You, Lord, for that truth. In Jesus' name, Amen.